Hello and welcome to the A to Z of Tech podcast series, which is an alphabetical journey through technology and innovation. Um, as always, I'm your host, Louise Taggart, and today's episode, we are up to T, which will be T for television, which is probably a topic fairly close to home for a lot of us, no pun intended. Um, there has, however, um, on a slightly more serious note, been a really rapid shift in technology in the past few years. I have to say, I'm probably giving my age away here, but I am old enough to remember when the Spice Girls launched the fifth fifth terrestrial channel here in the UK, which feels like a million miles away from where we are now with TV technology and content. So I'm delighted to say that for this episode, I'm joined by two excellent guests. Um, the first is Robert Freeman, who is a freelance technology journalist and lecturer, and who some of you with keen ears may remember from some of our previous episodes, including O for Open Data and M for Mobile. And we're also joined in the studio by Charlie Neuner, who works here at PwC in the extended reality team, helping clients across a variety of industries understand how emerging technology, particularly virtual and augmented reality, can drive strategic transformation. So welcome to you both, and thank you so much for joining me today for this episode. Thank you, it's great to be here in person. In person. I'm seeing the whites of your eyes. <laughs> nice. Absolutely. Um, so, Robert, I might actually start with you, if, if I could. Um, what does TV mean to you from a cultural perspective? And do you have a sort of a favorite memory associated with, with television? Uh, oh, I'm going to be really nerdy because my one of my earliest memories is um, trying to take the back off the TV at home uh, <laughs> and scaring my mother half to death because it's that classic thing of, oh, wait, where are these pictures coming from? Uh, and I found that fascinating. We were a two-television household, although one of them uh, uh, was black and white because it was the old TV that my, I think my grandparents might have had. Um, and so there was colour TV, and then, then the other room was the black and white TV. And I was also fascinated why, why one of them was colour and why one of them wasn't. So that was the, another reason to take the back off the thing. Uh, so yes, it, TV's always been um, fascinating me. It really is this it's a box of incredible thoughts and dreams and learning. And magic. And magic, it's yeah. a magic box. Absolutely. Um, Charlie, I might um, ask you the same question. Do you have a favorite childhood memory? It may or may not involve electric electrocution. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't say that they, it involves electrocution, but um, I guess my earliest television memories come down to watching shows like Top of the Pops, um, just kind of wait and watch that each week. Um, as a big kind of sport fan, um, watching it kind of on a Sunday and also just, just eagerly awaiting match of the day. I mean, I, it was, that was kind of my, my weekend, it all, all summed up into one there. Absolutely, always enjoy that theme, theme tune to match yeah. of the day. <laughs> um, so thinking actually a little bit more about the technology and the magic that goes into all of this. Um, Robert, from the kind of work that, that you do, what are some of the most significant changes that you've seen to date when it comes to when it comes to television? I think it's the change in economics of how the things are produced, both in terms of the studios, um, but also in terms of the cost of the displays. Uh, if you think back, I bought, um, I don't know, I, th I remember buying what seemed to be an enormous TV. It was the last CRT, the big chunky to the ones that went on and on at the back. <laughs> um, the last chunky TV I bought was 32 inch. 
Um, and that was a good, and it was the cheap one. It was the, you know, the, the white label brand, uh, and it was still 650 quid around, I don't know, 2000. And this was a huge purchase for me. Um, and the, it was still working uh, 15 years later. It had just run out of plugs on the back and nothing mm. was digital. And I felt really bad about chucking that thing away. But I bought a brand new, you know, branded television, you know, that was advertised to me that was, uh, it seemed twice the size. It was a quarter the weight and it was only 350 pounds. And so the fact that the, the, the economics of the displays have gone down and they are genuinely better. But also if you think uh, TV technology with the shift to digital and the fact that you get tiny boxes that just do amazing things and you just plug an HDMI cable on the back of them. And because it's digital, it is near enough broadcast quality. It's uh, pushed a huge upswing in um, television at, at all the levels, uh, you know, at the hobbyist TV uh, people, you know, you look at the YouTubers, they're using some fantastic technology, they get great, great pictures, but they're only spending hundreds of pounds, where uh, a few years ago, maybe 10 or more, um, they would have been spending thousands of pounds and probably tens of thousands mm -hmm. of pounds. So that economics, uh, the change in the price is one of the things that's really spurred innovation. Yeah. So it's that accessibility, both from a kind of economic perspective, but also from the technology that's available at those price points as well. Um, looking back over, I suppose, the last decade or so, are there any technologies that you thought might have become more mainstream that actually have, have maybe fizzled out a little bit? I, I suspect you're thinking of 3D here. <laughs> Absolutely. Three-dimensional <laughs> television. Um, actually, uh, here's a thing, here's a quiz, because uh, this may uh, do my point nicely. Um, have a guess of when you think um, Hollywood released its first, uh, you know, f to the public um, 3D film, and I'll give you a, a choice. Uh, so the choices are, um, okay, uh, let's go with, um, is it, was it 1922, 1932, or 1942? Which one do you think those was? I'm gonna go with 42. 42? I mean, I would have guessed 1992 yeah, if you hadn't given me later. any options. So yeah. I'll, go, I'll go 22 to be... Um, Daring, and it's the right answer. <laughs> 1922, The Power of Love, uh, Hollywood's first uh, uh, f uh, wow. 3D film. They had to invent a 3D film process. Uh, it got sent to New York and was exhibited and then sort of disappeared. It's one of the films they've kind of lost. But that's the start of it. And so every, you know, even though moving pictures were still very, very new, there was this push of innovation mm. to say, actually, how can we make this stuff more like what we see? Mm. And we see that again and again and again. And actually, there were film releases in 32 and in 42, and indeed in the 50s, um, and in the they came back again in the 70s. It's roughly every 20 years or so. The the big one uh, that uh, my parents will name check uh, is uh, Jaws, I think, mm -hmm. in 3D, and that was in sometime in the 70s, I think. Um, but yeah, these things come again when they really want people to, uh, they want to get the bums on the seats, yeah. or encourage people to buy new stuff. Um, Avatar uh, had a big 3D release yeah. as well. Um, although, again, that change in the economics, the change in the technology, makes it it's cheaper to actually release a, a, an animated, a, a digitally animated film mm. in 3D, because you just do something clever with the, um, the physical separation of the pixels, and then you just render the whole thing out uh, again. But yeah, 3D is, that kind of go-to. Oh, let's let's be innovative. Let's do 3D. And yet, loads of people don't know 
that it's been done for nearly a hundred years. Who knew? I, I actually had a 3D TV as a, as a, as a kid. Yeah, I did. It was, um, but the biggest problem we always had was, you know, when there's only two sets of glasses and a family of four <laughs> wants to watch a channel, then you end up just reverting back to the normal channel. Um, and we even there was one there's one occasion where we had eight sets and we were going to watch this big game of football, really excited, and then. I think my brother cancelled his plans and then we had nine and so we reverted back to the normal oh, TV no. so didn't even get to no. do that so that was always the biggest challenge um, I'm not sure it was the most worthwhile investment in the long run but and then someone's batteries have run out exactly yeah but again that was the problem uh, from the 20s onwards because people were inventing uh, a 3d mechanism and a way of viewing it there was one uh, that had uh, uh, 3d goggles that were sort of fixed to the chair because mm. that had to be in a very particular point for it to work um, and of course that means refitting your entire cinema for that to happen mm. not particularly practical no. for at home watching either but that's maybe a great opportunity to bring in some of the experiences that you've had charlie with emerging technology and innovation with some of the clients you've been working with um could you just touch on a little bit about how you've come to work in kind of this this space and the types of, of projects that you've been working on Yep, definitely. Um, so I guess my journey into, I guess, was now labelled extended reality. Um, it's a great term. I yeah, love that. It's a good <laughs> one. Um, came back kind of when I was at university. Um, started my placement year in a, a, another company in kind of digital marketing, um, and we used VR to kind of attract talent on campus for a lot of big brands. Um, so kind of the early days of the Vives. Um, quite big clunky VR machines but kind of really attracted either students or prospective kind of um, employees employees in um, to speak to speak to the relevant company so it was a, was a big success and, and always thought you know this technology has a lot of potential but right now it's you know it's worth you, you know your headset will cost you about two three thousand pounds then you need the laptop not a lot of legs to kind of scale um, and then kind of went back to university finished it always had an interest um, ended up joining PwC um, in, in consulting and then and gradually made my way into um, the XR team after a couple of years um, and it's amazing to see what it was then um, to what it is kind of kind of two three years later now in terms of the technology and how it's reduced um, the size and the ability to scale um, originally again even when I joined required the headsets with the big sensors and now you have the kind of standalone headsets um, and a lot of the work we do is is in things like um, training, sort of soft skills training, um, but also remote collaboration, which is a big bit. So the idea of bringing people together, having kind of multi-user meeting sessions, um, you know, activities to, especially during COVID, was it was a huge, huge uptick um, because you know people couldn't meet. So how do you give yourself this health a sense of immersion and embodiment um, whilst being um, remote and not being able to interact with your colleagues or, or clients? Um, so you had the full body avatars and everything else. So that was really, really good. And, and a lot of that work kind of fed into um, one thing I recently did um, with, with Sky, um, which is to help go in and launch their, uh, their home entertainment platform called Sky Worlds. Um, again, Sky were looking to bring together um, their audience and their customers, um, and they had a focus on Premier League football. Um, so as I said earlier, as a football fan and a kind of VR XR enthusiast, I thought this was the perfect thing ever. Um, job, exactly. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, sign me up, please. Um, so I went in and helped them help them launch that. It took about nine months, um, and essentially it was as a world's first in the sense of VR because they took the feed from the game um, and then had to overlay the kind of digital rights management over it and then kind of trans or transcode it into the, into VR. 
um, which was, like I said, world's first. But the idea was you brought the uh, brought the customer into the um, or the fan into the experience, um, and they got to watch the live Premier League game from either the dugout, the corner flag. Um, behind the goal or wherever they kind of really there's about four or five different cameras within the stadium all while being able to watch it with their friends so you could watch it with three other of your friends invite them into the room you could watch it with your dad that might have been three hours away or, or, your, or your, your neighbor um, especially during COVID that was a kind of a, a, a big plus um, but the idea was then on top of that you had the, the jumbotron so you had the best of both worlds of being in the stadium kind of having the commentary and having the fan atmosphere around you, so um, was a big was a big success and, and something that kind of was a I guess quite pioneering in the in both the sports field as well as kind of television for um, into as they looked into how they could um, move into more emerging technologies like VR. Do you do you get a, sort of a hologram of a pie at half time as well if you're watching the, <laughs> watching the I think they've got so. <laughs> they've got they've got lots of plans to see how they can uh, introduce other things. Um, but I mean, they've now moved on. You know, as I said, Premier League football was their first, their first, um, first journey. They've moved. They did the Cricket 100 this past summer, um, and now they've looked at kind of Sky Arts and Sky Cinema, um, and, and looking to kind of grow that, grow that portfolio on, on VR as well. So it's almost the next generation of what we were talking about there, with people watching 3D at home from the comfort of their own home. Maybe didn't quite catch on, but this is or like the new interpretation of what that could be in like at home watching? I think certainly for niches, definitely. Mm -hmm. For sports, absolutely. And, yeah. For, yeah. and for environments, I'm thinking of learning and sort of, you know, history programs, what it's like to go back to ancient Rome. Here is what it's like. You can look at it and see it and reach out and manipulate things. That's perfect use for, for VR and, and 3D. Mm. Um, I think previously just trying to blanket 3D on everything, isn't going to work, but then of course the economics of scale weren't such they could do they couldn't do anything but that because they had to get as many people watching as possible. Mm. And I think actually something you touched on a little bit earlier, Robert, around YouTubers and the access that people have to creating their own content now, which I think is very different to how things looked even five or ten years ago. Um, how are you seeing that relationship change? I suppose from your perspective of being a lecturer and a journalist and those conversations you're having, what does that look like from your perspective? I think for uh, big content makers and big broadcasters and distributors, they're going to, well, they are thinking much more about, um, uh, there's an understanding now that they can't make everything themselves. I mean, they was, you know, you would always have people who specialize in sport uh, or in documentary. Um, but particularly in, say, public service broadcasting, the, it's very difficult to bring in a new generation of viewers uh, when they've been watching YouTubers. And, and for them, that is what kind of television is. That may not be the word that they use, but in terms of visual content that they find interesting and stimulating and key, want to go back to, um, that's their, that's their go-to. But the, the um, as I've said before, the, the amount of money that is being put into consumer devices um, that are cheap and really good mm. um, and getting cheaper and getting better. We don't normally see these kinds of uh, um, economic graphs that just um, go, go in two, day, two ways at once. Normally, cutting price means cutting quality, but that's yeah. not what's happening in modern television. And actually, I think as well, the way that we are interacting with that content has completely changed too. Um, you know, it's 
I think it's probably fairly common now for everybody to, to find a box set and just binge watch it. You know, you find a program you like, you'll watch the first two series in, in one go versus how people tended to watch content five or 10 years ago where your favorite show was on on a Saturday night at 7 p.m. and that was it. There was no option to kind of, to watch the next five episodes as soon as you wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think that's changing the way that, that we, that our relationship is with television and, and what we watch? I probably haven't watched, I haven't sat down and just watched TV because annoyingly I'm not a sports fan. <laughs> uh, and so this kind of changes my compass a little bit. Um, I haven't watched TV just kind of sit at, uh, flop in front of the sofa and turn on it for 15 maybe more years as soon as I got set top box that sort of recorded everything I am there it's just so much more efficient for me to pick what I want when I want it um, and so and you know lo and behold this is kind of where a lot of people are now it's you know there are some people who just want to see what's on um, and certainly for news programs if that's that's an appointment to view and definitely for sport um, but a lot of people flick it on and it comes and says, oh, here's where you were watching before. Do you want to carry on watching? Or else, here are some other programs around the same theme. Much, uh, a much different way of discovering stuff. And it means that the, the traditional TV scheduler, uh, their, their job has changed radically because they have to, and it may be more creative, I'm not quite sure, they don't have to think so much about uh, bringing people in you know, transferring the audience from one program to another and from one part of the day to another and to kind of inherit audience. Mm -hmm. We don't think about TV scheduling quite in those ways anymore because um, suddenly marketing is so much more important. It's not just about the fact that you have the show. You've got to tell people that you've got the show um, much more now than in those sort of 15 second uh, interstitials used to get between one program and another. It's, you know, here's, here's what it is, this is why you would want to watch it, and here is how to get it whenever you want. Um, and, you, and it's not uncommon to have three or four or five or six different versions of one trailer that you position uh, or you market in different spaces for different audiences, and that collectively is how you get the people watching, but you, you, you market it um, very cleverly yeah. in little niches. And then this is probably where the technology that you're talking about, Charlie, comes in because it is those appointment to view um, events or mm -hmm. shows where actually people will sit down and plan to watch kind of like the, the, the extended reality version of kind of Arsenal versus Liverpool or um, whichever, whichever football match takes their fancy. Um, and in fact, those, those appointment bits become more important now mm. because there are, there are actually fewer of them. So you really want to build your audience to the end of that week, you know, if it's the match or if it's Strictly Come Dancing or, or something similar. Mm. Yeah. The, the other thing that's quite interesting around that is you mentioned the advertising. With those appointment, um, I guess, games or shows such as the Strictly, you know, the advertising that goes in between those people, you know, probably still see, while the ones prior your daytime television the advertising or you know people you know flicking on their streaming service there are no ads so you know as an advertiser where do you where do you put your money in that perspective it's there is an argument to say actually that some of the advertising becomes more special you know uh, in the in the run-up to Christmas every year there are these we're getting these kind of big marquee ads uh, and, and it's a, and I've seen it, it uh, described as an advertisement event. It's the first time we're going to show this ad from whoever it is for 90 mm -hmm. seconds. Um, 
so uh, yeah, advertisers are, are picking up on this, and yes, yeah, so, so these may become more special as well. It's interesting that a big a, a big TV platform at the moment uh, has a, a mechanism whereby you can pay to skip the ads, mm. uh, and I think that's fascinating, and uh, not least for the contracts that requires for the advertisers that you're going to skip but interestingly because I've seen that I've seen I've had a play with it uh, it doesn't really skip in the way that you might expect you can fast forward through the ads at a limited speed <laughs> so actually you do still see the messages and the logos and you can see who is advertising I think that's fascinating so it's still all the subliminal messaging is still happening you're just paying mm. to make it happen more quickly <laughs> um, so we've, we've touched on some of the kind of the technological innovation we've seen to date or maybe that which hasn't quite kind of panned out as maybe people expected. So then if we, if we look forward, um, how do you think we'll start engaging with, with content in new ways in say the next kind of two to, two to five years? What is that going to look like? I think yeah, Charlie, you start. I'll start, I'll start on this. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Um, I think there's two ways of looking at it. I think the first is a big, there's a big emphasis on a lot of these companies for co-viewing. Um, we saw a recent, uh, uh, recent company come up with their television, which allows for co-viewing um, to bring people together, which is you know fantastic. Um, um, and that's that's kind of one angle. However. From my perspective, I mean, I'm biased as an Exxon enthusiast. What's really interesting to me is how we kind of move into that next generation of, of viewing from a augmented reality um, and kind of virtual reality perspective. So we touched on the virtual reality of being in an immersive experience. Um, and although augmented reality isn't you know, quite there in terms of bringing it into our, into our houses, um, even though we have very powerful AR devices on our phones, and I think we all forget that, um, you know, the future idea is that you could have a, a live volumetric capture, um, which is essentially kind of uh, a mixture of um, kind of a, a, a series of cameras plus some deep learning or machine learning um, to portray almost holograms into your living room. So if you think, you know, that works at the moment in games, um, which is you know very successful. Um, but the next step is then bring it into your living room, so you could, for imagine, take your sporting events. You know the classic example of, for example, even in this room, you could have a um, a boxing ring, um, or even your living room, and you could have you know the Joshua fight going on where you can move around him in while it's going on live. And then that is you know that's the next level kind of viewing experience. Um, so that's really interesting. But you can apply that to events and even kind of TV film productions. There are some companies that are uh, exper um, kind of experimenting it from for news perspectives. Um, but yeah, a whole, a whole series of, of that is really interesting. And I find what's quite what's really interesting on top of that is that a lot of these streaming providers say that their biggest competitors aren't each other, but more the I guess the you know the gaming industry and, and, and ultimately they're all competing for screen time. So how do they make their experiences more mm. entertaining? So one streaming service recently uh, came up with a, um, a a program and based on the League of Legends games, and that's now their number one show. Of you know outdid all their other shows, and it's number one I think in about 52 countries. So that's you know pretty impressive considering all the other things they've got in place um so it's the it's for me it's the the combination of television plus gaming entertainment that's the next step 
um, especially for the future generations that will be big. And all beamed live into your living room and you can interact with it, yes, which sounds fairly, fairly mind-blowing. I don't think my living room is big enough to fit a boxing ring, but maybe I'll have to move in time for that tech to come through. <laughs> um, Robert, what, what about from your perspective? What do you think we'll be seeing in the next kind of five years or so? I'm fascinated uh, about resolution. So one of the things that we have seen, and it is really successful, uh, along with crashing prices, uh, is the fact that there are more and more pixels packed into uh, screens. The screens are affordable. Um, the stuff looks amazing because not only is it higher resolution, because we've, we've gone from SD to HD, from HD to 4K, from 4K to 8K, uh, but the pixels are better as well. They, they are able to show far more uh, a range of colors and uh, better gradations from black to white, uh, and this is what they call high dynamic range. Um, and also the size of these things will increase, the prices will continue to fall. Um, for example, 8K was invented uh, in Japan, gosh, 15 or more years ago, and they saw it as a sort of replacement for a wall in your room. Um, and it will still blow up to that size. I mean, it's easily, um, you know, IMAX and greater size, it's, it's proper theatrical uh, cinema size um, but we're already putting these into I would say quite small screens 65 inch mm. type screens um, when they get to the stage where you can blow them up very large um, then even maybe without 3d you'll be back into this uh, yeah replace a wall of your room with a totally amazing experience and at the same time uh, just thinking because Charlie's mentioned kind of um, volume displays. There are at least three studios in London with these enormous LED panels that seem to go on forever that they use effectively. Again, we're back to 1922 in the Hollywood film industry because they used they uh, to get control over um, the environment. They didn't used to go out shooting and they used to use this process of back projection. So you do this fight scene on what looked like the top of a train, but no, 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 viewer, uh, it's just, a, you know, they're just projecting out into the background. Um, the, the oldest technique, but actually that's how a lot of many new productions are shot. Disney's Mandalorian was almost exclusively shot inside on one of these enormous LED displays, and they can control it, and you'd never know because they can control the light, even the reflection of, you know, whatever desolate landscape or uh, world is, is on reflects properly onto the performer, so, and it doesn't look uh, like a green or a blue screen. Um, and so uh, I think we'll see more of those, and I think those will then start to go back into the home. So really we're seeing the modern version of the black and white sort of rickety car journey where there was very obviously a kind of projected background and just people sort of hobbling around on a Yeah, on a and we'll think seat. about television <laughs> in different ways, because if you've got a panel that's as big as your room and it's uh, you know, it's the, and it's the middle of winter and it's cold and dark and wet outside and you just think, oh, I, I want to be somewhere brighter. Just change the landscape in your room, you know, the way we play with our screensavers, for those of <laughs> us who still do that. Um, you know, you could suddenly be, you know, you could suddenly have a, maybe in the same place, but it's bright and it's sunny outside. Yeah. And that will make a huge difference. Mm.
I said it's a big thing about how you can use your TV beyond just for watching television, isn't it? It's exactly. Can you use it to, for work? Can you use it for your mood? Can you use it? I mean, it's a whole series of things you can use, use it. Um, and I think that's the exciting bit. And we have a very narrow definition of what television is these days, and I think uh, there aren't better words, actually. Um, so uh, my, I, I already think of television in very, very broad senses, uh, and I think that will hopefully percolate across. Thank you both so much for joining me in person in the studio today. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on and kind of sharing some of your insights. Um, I have to say, I am actually looking forward very much to an, a hologram of the Great British Bake Off. I'm making sure <laughs> that I can taste some of the baked goods that are being, being made there, so I look forward to that one. Um, and to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Um, do remember to rate us and subscribe to the podcast series so you can join us for the next episode, which will be you. Thank <music> you.